You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We come to the end of John chapter 8 this morning. If you'd like to open your Bibles to John 8, we'll be picking it up in verse 46. It's been quite a journey to get to this point. This is actually the 10th message on this chapter. I feel like I've ignored or glossed over so much of substance here that I haven't been able to do justice to it. It's one of the most profound chapters in the Bible, actually, but it contains some of the most difficult passages to understand as well. So as I said, it's been a challenge getting this far, and unfortunately I haven't been able to dig in deeply to some of the more difficult passages, but um, here we are, and the chapter closes with one of the most amazing statements that Jesus or anyone else ever made. Before we look at it, let's look at some of the ground we've covered in John's Gospel so far. John opens this Gospel with a statement about the deity and the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He calls him the Word in the first few verses. He records John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus and John the Baptist introducing his followers to Jesus. Jesus then begins to gather 12 disciples to himself, 12 men who will walk with him, talk with him, eat with him, and learn from him for three years. They watch his every move. Now, we know, because we've read this story before, that one of them will betray him eventually. But the first hint of that doesn't actually show up until a third of the way through the gospel. John's Gospel is also a story of increasing hostility towards Jesus. The general population, of course, are fascinated by him. They flock to him whenever they hear he's in the region. They love his miracles. They love being healed by him. They love being fed by him. But for the most part, they don't really understand what it is he's talking about. While some struggle to make sense of his words, Others reject his teaching outright, or they twist it for their own purposes. The religious leaders, of course, we know, see him as a threat, a threat to their prestige, a threat to their control, a threat to their reputation as defenders of God and of the Holy Scriptures. So their hostility increases from mere annoyance at this upstart preacher who upends the tables of the traders in the temple back in John chapter 2, right through to their plots to attempt to kill him, which they try to do in the very last verse of this chapter. Along the way, we've watched Jesus perform a small handful of miracles. John deliberately chooses to put very little emphasis on miracles in this account. Instead, he puts a large emphasis on Jesus' teaching, including the very clear implication that if you reject Jesus' teaching, you reject it at your peril. We've heard Jesus preach and we've heard him teach the Jews, the Samaritans and the Galileans. Of the three groups, only the Samaritans eagerly embrace his teaching. The Galileans are more interested in the sideshow of miracles and the Jews, especially the religious leaders, argue with him and reject him. Some tentatively believe in him, but their faith doesn't seem to stick when the going gets tough. 
The themes that Jesus dwells on in John's gospel are profound and weighty. They're themes of light and darkness, bondage and freedom, truth and lies, heaven and earth, receiving and rejecting, life and death. They all centre on the question of who Jesus is. Consistently and unapologetically throughout this gospel, Jesus makes the claim that he is much more than a mere man. He makes claims to nothing less than full deity and equality with God. I find it astounding that so many religious groups, many of which claim to be Christian, could reject the idea that Jesus is God. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, are the most famous of these groups, but by no means the only ones. I'm of the firm opinion that you cannot be a genuine Christian if you reject the deity, the godhood of Jesus Christ. I find it astounding because I don't know how you could read John's gospel, much less study it and come to any other conclusion than that Jesus Christ really is God. He makes the claim in veiled ways and he makes the claim in obvious ways. And in our text today, he declares it clearly. In fact, that's the very reason why the religious leaders become murderously angry with him. Jesus is making claims about himself that only belong properly to God. And they've set themselves the task of jealously guarding their God. So let's get into our text for today, starting at John 8.46. Jesus, speaking primarily to the religious leaders, says, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. and Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As we've heard the last couple of weeks, Jesus rejects the proud declaration of the religious leaders that they're children of Abraham. Uh, They may be physical descendants of Abraham, but Jesus points out that if they were truly Abraham's descendants, then they would be doing what Abraham did and welcoming Jesus. But they won't 
because they're children of the devil. They're liars and murderers, just like their father. And what's their response to that? It's not to counter with well-reasoned arguments from their precious scriptures, but to attack him personally. And they attack him with the worst insult that they can think of. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? You know, that's the way of people who have no good response to an argument, to attack the person. Ad hominem is the term for that. It literally means to the man. It's a Latin phrase. It's a term that means to attack the person's character rather than their position or their argument. Christians should be used to ad hominem attacks. The weaker your opponent's argument and the stronger yours, the more likely he is to begin criticising you rather than responding to your claims. But don't be surprised by that. Jesus warned that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like the master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, in spite of their certainty, Jesus can't possibly have a demon. If he had a demon, he'd be seeking his own glory. But he doesn't. He seeks the Father's glory instead. So in verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my Father and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. And then Jesus goes on to make a statement that only confirms to them that he is demonised. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The arrogance of this man, they're thinking. So the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They can't get their claim, their head around a claim like this. Even the godliest people die. Look at Abraham. He was chosen by God to be the father of their nation and the father of their religion. He died and witnessed the prophets. Special envoys sent, sent to speak the very words of God himself. They all died. How then can Jesus claim to have the power to keep people alive? Notice it's not just that Jesus is claiming that he can keep someone alive. He's claiming his words have the power to keep someone alive. It's not the first and it won't be the last time that Jesus makes a claim like this. He said it in John 3.16. You might remember this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Or maybe in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Or John 6.40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 6.51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. 
if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or maybe John eleven twenty six. everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's just a small sample from John's gospel alone. Each and every one of those is a claim to deity. It might be a veiled claim from our perspective, but the Jews understood him clearly. What was the power that created the heavens and the earth in the beginning? The word of God. And the whole of Psalm 119 speaks of the life-giving power of God's word. If Jesus says that his word has the power to defeat death, then he's claiming to be God. He's claiming the same power for his words that God exercised in creation. Remember at the start of our text today, Jesus asked, which one of you convicts me of sin? They had no answer. Try as they might, they couldn't find any fault in him. Nothing that would stand up in a court of law. That's why they had to manufacture evidence against him at the end, because they couldn't legitimately convict him of any sin or any crime. Now, they all knew the sin that they harbored in their own hearts. Remember how they all dropped their stones and walked away at the beginning of John 8 when he said, Jesus said, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at this woman. They knew the sin that was in their heart, and yet they could find nothing to convict Jesus of. So since they're unaware of their own sin, uh, since they're aware of their own sin, since they're unaware of any fault in this man, maybe they should take his words a bit more seriously, wouldn't you think? But no, we know that you have a demon, they say. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now the Jews are really incredulous. Typically, of course, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying and they put words in his mouth to boot. You're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? How can Jesus claim to have seen Abraham? He's not even 50 years old. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that he was around about 30 when he started his ministry. So I actually doubt that they were making any definitive statement about Jesus' actual age. But it's true. Jesus is not even a middle-aged man yet. How could he claim that, to have seen Abraham? Abraham lived nearly 2,000 years previously. But look carefully at what Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus didn't say, I saw Abraham's day, although he did. He said, 
Abraham saw my day. Now, we don't know for sure how it was that Abraham saw Jesus' day. There are a number of different theories. Some think it speaks of Abraham watching over Jesus' work from paradise. You might think maybe of the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. But Jesus uses the past tense and says, Abraham saw my day, not that Abraham sees my day. So that seems an unlikely understanding of it. Some think it speaks of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This theory declares that Abraham rejoiced at the prospect of the Messiah being born from his descendants. Others look at Genesis 15 and the covenant that God made with Abraham to make a nation out of him and the Messiah that would come from that nation. Maybe it was when the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18 to promise him a son in 12 months' time. Or maybe it refers to when that son was finally born. Abraham named him Isaac, which means laughter. No doubt Abraham rejoiced and he laughed with joy at the event of the birth of his son. There are a number of other theories, but Jesus may not be referring to any specific event. Maybe he's just referring to Abraham's faith that God would one day bring a Messiah, a saviour, to rescue them all. After all, the book of Hebrews tells us, speaking not only of Abraham, but also of Abel and Enoch and Noah, all of whom preceded Abraham, tells us these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Now, what is clear is that Abraham looked forward with joy to Jesus' day, whereas Jesus' own contemporaries despised and rejected him. Now, after stirring up this controversy, Jesus then makes the clearest statement yet as to his deity about his godhood. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. This is a profound statement. It warrants deep study. John makes clear at the end of his gospel the reason why he wrote this record of Jesus' life. In John 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John's intention is that we would understand exactly who Jesus Christ is. He didn't want there to be any confusion. Hence how frequently John records statements by Jesus that point to the fact that he is none other than God in the flesh. So it pays for us to look carefully at what Jesus said, to look carefully at the tense of the verbs that Jesus used. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham came into existence at a particular point in time. Before Abraham was, he wasn't. He didn't exist. Now, Abraham was born nearly 2,000 years BC when his father Terah was 70 years old. They lived a long time in those days and had children at a much later age than we do. 
Abraham himself lived to be 175. So that puts his death at around 1,800 years before Jesus makes this statement. Abraham was mortal. He was human, just like you and I. Hence the reason why the Jews couldn't get their head around Jesus' statement. In contrast, Abraham was, but Jesus says, I am. But Jesus is declaring his pre-existence. He is declaring that he existed before Abraham was born. He's not just claiming that he came into existence before Abraham. That would make him at least 2,000 years old, which is hard enough to believe. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's claiming that there was never a time when he was not. There was never a time when he didn't exist. I am speaks of eternality. It's not the first time that Jesus has talked about himself in I am terms. I am the bread of life, he said in John 6.35. I am the light of the world, he called himself in John 8.12. And in the same chapter, John 8.28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. Our English translations add he onto the end of that phrase, but Jesus literally says, when you have lifted, the, lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. He'll use this name more before he's done. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is not just claiming to have existed before Abraham. He's claiming much more than that. When Jesus said, I am, he was deliberately equating himself with the statement that God made to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. I'll take you back there quickly. Moses saw this mysterious, mysterious bush burning but not being consumed by the flames. So he went to investigate. And out of the bush, God speaks, saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then God then tells Moses to go back to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt. But Moses protests, saying, in effect, they won't take any notice of me unless I tell them who sent me. They will want to know your name. So in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The actual term used there is Yahweh. It's uh, often translated in English versions. The King James, for example, is Jehovah. You'd be familiar with the word Jehovah. It's actually a Hebrew word Yahweh. And it means, I am. So Jesus is very clearly identifying himself as the very same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That's obviously what the Jews believed him to be saying, because they wanted to stone him to death. It's not the only Old Testament passage that Jesus identifies himself with. He's also calling to mind verses 
like Isaiah 41.4, and the Jews would be thinking about these. Isaiah 41.4 tells us, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Isaiah 41.13, I am he, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. Or Isaiah 44.6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You might recall Jesus saying something exactly like that. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Or Isaiah 46.9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. They were furious with Jesus. He's a blasphemer. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's not surprising that the Jews were upset with him. They were fierce monotheists. They were fierce defenders of Yahweh, the I am. And they knew what Jesus was declaring when he said this. They knew that he was claiming to be God. Even if plenty of people today want to reject that interpretation, his own contemporaries knew what he meant. That's why they tried to stone him to death on the spot. Stoning was the required method of punishment for anyone who blasphemes God. It's laid out clearly in the law of Moses, and they knew the law of Moses by heart. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, it says in Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh, the name I am. Now John, in this gospel, has never shied away from showing the deity of Jesus Christ. His opening sentences, you might recall, say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Literally, the word was with God and God was the word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. You know, John doesn't even mention Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. Instead, he begins this record of Jesus' life and ministry by taking us back to eternity past, John tells us that Jesus has always existed, that there never was a time when Jesus was not. If Jesus was a created being, why do you think John ignored his birth in Bethlehem and goes back to a time before time? Jesus is not a created being, not like we are. He is not a created being like the angels. He's not a created being like the devil or the demons. He is, and he can only be, God in the flesh. Now, if Jesus wasn't claiming to be God when he said before Abraham was, I am, he could have cleared up the misunderstanding immediately. He could have protested, no, you've got it all wrong. I'm not pretending to be God. Let me explain to you what I mean. But he never says that. He doesn't say it here. He doesn't say it anywhere else. In fact, 
he pushes in even harder on his claim as his ministry continues. And the religious leaders get more and more furious and more and more determined to have him killed. Jesus, you could have prevented a whole lot of grief for a whole lot of people if you just admitted that you aren't really God. Unless, of course, you are. There has only ever been one way of salvation. We are saved today in exactly the same way that Abraham was 4,000 years ago, by trusting in Jesus Christ. We sometimes forget that, but there is only one way of salvation. There is only one saviour. There is only one hope for sinners, Jesus Christ. The only difference between us and Abraham is that Abraham looked forward 2,000 years to when the saviour would come. We look back 2,000 years to when the saviour did come. But it's the same saviour, Jesus Christ, God over all, who never changes. That, friends, is good news. If Jesus really is God, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him in faith. If he is not, he is unable to save at all. If he is God, nothing is too hard for him. He can save you and he can keep you saved. And that's because Jesus Christ is no mere man. He is man, to be sure. He's 100% human. Never forget that. Jesus is holy man. He's just as truly human as each one of us. But he is more than man, for he is also 100% God. 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle said of this text in John chapter 8, that it shows us the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of that great foundation on which sinners are invited to rest their souls. He to whom the gospel bids us come with our sins and believe for pardon and peace is no mere man. He is nothing less than very God. Then let us begin coming to him with confidence. And let us continue leaning on him without fear. The Lord Jesus Christ is true God and our eternal life is secure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great mystery it is that the God of all creation could come in the flesh, born as a baby in Bethlehem, living 30-odd years in Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, and that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, could die on a Roman cross on trumped-up charges of crimes and blasphemies and sins. 
But, Lord, that's what your word tells us is exactly the truth. This great mystery, God in the flesh, is Jesus Christ. Come as man, pre-existing all eternity, come as man to redeem us from our sins, to reconcile us back to our Father in heaven. Lord, your word just so clearly reveals that Jesus Christ is much more than man, that he is God and God in the flesh. Lord, I pray that if there be any doubt in our hearts about this, that your Holy Spirit would burn that nonsense out of us and would open us up to the truth that Jesus Christ is God. And as such, there is nothing too hard for him. Even the salvation of those whose hearts are black with sin, whose minds are set against Christ, nothing is too hard for him than to shine light into that blackness to wash clean minds and bring new life. Lord, I pray for all my friends here that they will know the reality of that new life every day. And I pray for our friends, our family who don't yet know that new life. Lord, would you shine the light of your gospel into the depths of their beings. And, Lord, would the great truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh explode in their minds. Send them to their knees in repentance and lift their hearts in faith towards this great I am, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Jesus, we pray that you would do these things through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we worship you as we worship you singing those songs this morning as Merrily was leading us. We worship you, the one and only, the first and the last. The name above every name the name at which one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, God over all. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.